God amounts to a hypothesis saying immediately institutes God as a hypothesis. The hypothesis, the language is one, or which is the same that there is a meta language. And this hypothesis will be there as long as there is language. The God hypothesis, which could also be understood more bluntly as a unconscious faith in the coherence of sense-making, remains structurally necessary for speech to be even minimally operative. In this sense, whatever he says, Homo sapiens always speaks as a dieu, a god-sayer. The animal that happens to speak and be at odds with sex cannot but put forward the god hypothesis. Yet, by the same token, Lacan is not in the least identifying God with speech or language, which would result in the end simply into a trivialized reiteration of the Christian logos, as instead several commentators maintain in a more or less nuanced manner. Lacan seems to anticipate such a flagrant equivocation in Seminar 22 and categorically dispels it. Quote, I have never said that God is in language, end of quote. Quite on the contrary, God, that is the God hypothesis, quote, consists of the set of the effects of language, end of quote. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to this week's edition of Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our guest today, we just want to throw out that we do have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Also consider, you know, if you can't do that, maybe throw us a review on iTunes. We're very excited to bring you all a translator of both Agamben and Zizek's work, author of Subjectivity and Otherness, a philosophical reading of Lacan, The Virtual Point of Freedom, Essays on Politics, Aesthetics, and Religion, The Not Too Logic and God and Lacan, and an upcoming volume that uh, has a working title. But uh, we'd like to extend a very machinic welcome to Lorenzo Chiesa. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. Lorenzo, uh, I just want to note really briefly. So there was a time where we had several Lacanians on the show in a very short amount of time. And I feel like there were four or five Lacanians that were citing your work and were like, who is this Chiesa character? (laughs) He must be important. We should talk to him. So, (laughs) Yeah, I remember first hearing of your work when we spoke with Isabel Millar. That's why I immediately went out and got the knot too, because the, the footnotes she had to that work 
was very intriguing, very helpful, especially I believe it was when um, she was discussing the the famous sexuation diagram mm-hmm. that, that Lacan has, which you spend time working on. And the forthcoming book, you said the title, the working title is God is Undead. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And your section of that book, which you are co-authoring with Adrian Johnston, right, is uh, is agnostic atheism. Yes, that, that is the main notion I'm promoting in this new book, which is, in a sense, a continuation of, of the not two, especially with regard to the question of God and more specifically, what is to be thought in order to actually promote a viable, hopefully, atheism today. An atheism, like Lacan says, paraphrasing closely, that does not contradict itself all the time. <laughs> yeah, I saw in yeah. a sense, this is like a continuation of, of the not two. It started off as a um, minor article, and Adrian uh, mm. and I felt that after 15 years we've been, you know, exchanging emails, meeting, visiting, and working together informally, we had to actually then put together something written, even though the two parts are separated. And, and then it turned into a quite long book. It will be a very long book in the end, because I think we're talking about you know, more than 100,000 words, so a book. Yeah. It, it just, like, grew spontaneously <laughs> somehow. I'm happy to see it as a, perhaps, like, not just a long footnote to the not to focusing more specifically on the question of God and atheism. It's also, like, a bridge towards a um, more long-term project, which, you know, um, I've been working on and will take several years to complete on the question of, of indifference. Mm-hmm. or better indifference, which, which I think by now, I'm getting older, will be my <laughs> modest contribution to, you know, like hopefully relatively new ontology. I was interested in that aspect of your future work, which we can go ahead and tackle now before we circle back mm-hmm. uh, to the origins, because you, you mentioned in the not too about, I took this as, as future research about the political and ethical implications of uh, what what of the, the truth of incompleteness or you phrase it I'm paraphrasing you now I'm, and mm-hmm. you can probably say it better and and so I wonder if that's part of the furthering of the project is sort of eliciting the uh, political and ethical implications of your of your para yeah yeah I mean what I actually think I wrote in the introduction to the not two which you know was published in 2016 and mostly written I'm a very slow writer mostly written between 2010 2013 so it's a pretty old book by now. <laughs> what I think I wrote there in the introduction is like one of the topics that I wanted to focus in the future is the question of true love, which is something I've been saying oh. since my PhD. Yeah. And that, that is for the time being I mean, and for the foreseeable future still an abortive project. So that is not going to come out soon, if uh-huh. ever. In terms of the um, more explicitly political implication of what I've been doing over the last decade, the project I've been working assiduously on, but um, I'm, I'm changing my direction now, okay. is, is a project on bureaucracy, mm. which I'm not sure will actually eventually be published in book form because, well, I recently you know, returned to the material. I was working on this like right after the publication of Not Two. Mm-hmm. And I published a couple of articles, one of which is like forthcoming at the mm-hmm. end of Another one is forthcoming on the end of this year. I'm not very happy to actually speak about bureaucracy in a too intra-Lacanian manner. And it, it became very much like my take on the discourses. 
So I'm not sure whether that project will actually materialize into a book. There is already like one article out and one mm-hmm. book coming. So I, I have to make that decision very, very soon, in a sense, because now the, um, the book co-authored with Adrian on agnosticism and atheism psychoanalysis is finished. I suppose I will actually mostly focus on the more ontological aspect of my research. So as I was saying before, this question of indifference, which, by the way, I mean, intuitively has also like uh, quite clear political implications. We are politically indifferent. Uh, what is an existent existence that is indifferent? Mm-hmm. Why, enough for theory, one should come up with an ontology of indifference or indifference, which she's already pre-announced in various manners in the not too, and much more so towards the end of God is Undead, where I try to come up with a kind of like manifesto <laughs> for my, my ongoing and forthcoming ontology. I guess the book on, I, this is something I have to decide very soon, but I guess like my, my next step will be delving into the ontological positions and implications of what I say in God is undead and is already partly present in the not too. On the question of ethics, I recently published, well, I recently published is not true because the publisher is being a bit l- slow as often <laughs> happens. But last year I wrote a very long piece on a um, new reading of Seminar 9 and the question of evil uh, mm. in Seminar 9 Antigone, which is not yet out. I, I forgot about it, but because of a number of delays. So, the end of the day, yes, the ethical political component is being delivered in article form more than in, in a book form, you know. That's excellent, especially thinking about your future writing on true love. It, that obviously is also, you devote a whole chapter and it, it goes throughout the book itself on, on love and, of course, the axiom about there is no sexual relation. So it, it does follow that your, your work has many threads going through it. And I want to get back to this question about indifference and, and mm-hmm. uh, allow us to, to soak it in and for the audience to, to soak it in because it, it's one of the most fascinating parts of, of your work. But I did want to circle back. And we always like to ask this question and, and we can keep it, you can keep it as brief or as, uh, mm-hmm. as long as you'd like. I'm curious about your sort of encounters with Lacan. Before we started recording, you did mention a little bit about the intellectual milieu at Warwick where you were studying. I was curious, I was interested, right? Because when you write about your differences and, and convergences with Adrian Johnston, who who has a sort of clinical side, when you say mm. you're, you're sort of like a, one of these inveterate, I forget how you phrased it, you're, you, you've always been kind of an analysis, but, but I, I, I guess, can you tell us about sort of getting into Lacan and and what really sealed the deal that made Lacan this this intense study for you. Yeah. Yeah, it's like more than two decades by now. I mean, it goes <laughs> back to my to my actually initial BA studies in Italy. Okay. Where where a kind of like deconstructive post-structuralist uh doxta reigned uh, supreme mm-hmm. and everything that was actually sponsored by Lacan from the Ridian quarters was this question, well, actually it's a, the title of a uh, small entries in the Accrete of a subject to finally in question. So mm-hmm. there was very much this attempt that we're talking about the uh, late 90s during my BA. So there was very much an attempt to actually, in a way, I would say to simplify short circuit Lacan with the question of the of Foucauldian manner 
and very hegemonic already then in Italy, this question of the death of the subject. And mm -hmm. this, was not, this was not as a philosopher. My background is entirely in philosophy, not mm -hmm. psychology uh, or sociology, etc. This is not what I was reading. So in a way, you know, like the deconstructive lesson, I always say, you know, I grew up academically with bread and dairy dye and some Foucault. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. The good Derridian in me at that point really wanted to deconstruct the text, but the text mm -hmm. was not giving me a Derridian Lacan. Yeah. And that was very fascinating. So opening up big things, I would say that what in those years, in my formative years, I found in Lacan is Alabadieu, a quite advanced and anti-hegemonic for those years theory of the subject, which mm -hmm. then led into a more ontological exploration, which is already with Lacan beyond Lacan. So this question of actually finding a very advanced theory of the subject, even before meeting Badiou's work, was, <laughs> was in those years, the same years, the same context that Badiou criticizes in his Manifesto for Philosophy. So a kind of like aesthetic suture, post-Heideggerian, Derridian, Lacula Barthes, etc. Yeah. Of, of philosophy, you know, like Lacan could not fit in that context as a thinker and that has been like a constant uh, preoccupation for me that is to say articulating a theory of the subject even before thinking about the ontological positions implications of that which is topical which is still topical today and yeah. I, I found that in Lacan so existentially one could say I was unhappy with what I was being taught even though very creatively in terms of what now we can recognize as the progressive post-structuralist, uh, if not post-modernist doxa. That's actually fascinating. And, you know, it's my introduction to Lacan was much less interesting, but it was it was uh, equally intriguing because I have a background in, in English literature and philosophy. And so my first introduction to Lacan was, mm -hmm. as like many, the mirror stage essay, right, which is mm -hmm. one of the things he's most known for. And it was learning Lacan to read literature in a more creative way. I remember having to use Lacan to read like Frankenstein, for example, mm. and the sort of possibilities of the kind of engagements with texts that came out of that, I think made it kind of seal the deal for me that mm. even though I found him incredibly difficult, obviously the, all the agree is, is even more difficult than the seminars, which <laughs> themselves are, difficult, but the kind of questions I was asking that Lacan kind of pushed me to ask, I think is how I was, I became fascinated with him. And I know that for Cooper, he's always said Lacan is one of his, what do you call him, Coop? You have a, your, your own way of describing your relationship. Yeah, I, I don't think he's the best philosopher or analyst or maybe even thinker broadly, but I think he's one of the most creative thinkers. I think he is among just the, his, I don't know, there's just something that I'm drawn to and I just admire about him and his capacity for creativity and thought. Yeah, I mean, the way I put it, if you want to actually open up things and say, going back to the, uh, I think was part of the initial question, the second part of the initial question, why is Lacan still necessary today or topical? I mean, for me, the question is finding a junction or connection between, well, on the one hand, as a philosopher, ontology and political and ethical theory mm -hmm. and psychoanalysis, because psychoanalysis at the end of the day, even though I'm quite increasingly skeptical about the specificity of that discourse, is a praxis. You right. know, like we do not have to actually 
bringing Woody Allen, but in a sense, you know, he's right. You're going to an analyst, you're talking to an analyst. It, it is a kind of linguistic experience that is created in a very artificial setting. So there is an empiricity in, in psychoanalysis, yes. which you do not find in philosophy. And that's also like why Lacan and not someone else. O of course, Padieu is a mm -hmm. far more sophisticated, systematic thinker than Lacan. Of course, one can say, okay, but you as is like political praxis at yes. a certain point. But this is not so immediate. Whereas I think like Lacanian theory, at the end of the day, even if we want to actually pinpoint the leitmotif of the not two, there is no sexual relationship. This is on a first level, something completely intuitive, axiomatic in an ancient Greek sense, i.e. empirically evident. Our lives are fucked up by our love relationships, our sexuality, etc., etc. That is what I think is still topical today, in spite of any possible criticism of the discourse and politics, if you wish, of clinical psychoanalysis. You know, it's a praxis. It's a mm -hmm. praxis that, as a philosopher, gives you an empirical anchoring, starting from which ontology, political theory, and ethics acquire a new life or at least a complication, a productive complication. Speaking of praxis, uh, this made me think about, I believe you kind of self-describe or label uh, yourself and, and Adrian as Freudo-Marxists. And I was thinking about how this is one of the interesting things that ties Marxism broadly in psychoanalysis is that in, in a certain sense, they're not merely sort of theoretical or philosophical. They have they have these directly practical sides. Is that something that, that informs that self-description? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, like, yes, I have defined myself recently, but I've always thought of myself as a Freudo-Marxist, not specifically in terms of what that is usually taken to be, I mean, a critique of ideology, of commodity fetishism, et cetera, et cetera. But because I think both Freud, but Lacan especially, Mm -hmm. And Marx, at the end of the day, theoretically speaking, are putting forward or are building everything they say, respectively, on a certain philosophical anthropology. Going back to the early and vituperated Marx, the early Marx, he's mm -hmm. not a humanist uh, in, in a <laughs> stupid, straightforward, cliche, naive manner. He's putting forward a philosophical anthropology. And I think there's mm -hmm. a similar methodological move, if not in Freud, at least in Lacan. Mm. The transition between uh, the praxis of psychoanalysis that Lacan puts forward and what one can extract out of it in terms of the theory of the subject and ontology is a philosophical anthropology. And I've been insisting on that, especially in informal talks like this, because I think the late 20th century has not had really a philosophical anthropology. It's a kind of term which has disappeared from our philosophical jargon, especially in progressive circles. It, is, it tends to be associated with usually conservative projects dating back to Germany in the, in the 30s and 40s. The last explicit philosophical anthropology is late Sat, isn't it? The critique of dialectical reason is a philosophical mm. anthropology. But mm. the Freudo-Marxist, you know, like, just to go back, a full circle, I think what makes me say that I am a Freudo-Marxist, of course, critique of ideology, of course, critique of commodity fetishism, but it's this idea that, in a way, the species is a, philosophically, anthropologically speaking, a poor species. Poor can be applied <laughs> to a, a political economy, it can, it can apply to the mm -hmm. conception of helplessness in yes. a Freudian Lacanian 
psychoanalysis, the genericity of the animal that happens to speak, the end vaso, going back to the early Marx, has to do with a certain poverty. And however you want to understand that, and it opens up huge questions, I think what is there, both in Freud, or at least a certain Freudian reading of Lacan and Marx, and hence Marxism up to a certain point, is a basic philosophical anthropology. This is interesting because you mentioned the ancients. Uh, I was thinking when discussing with Coop this axiom, or I, if I may call it that, of there is no sexual relationship, there is no sexual ratio. I was thinking about the symposium, Plato's symposium, and, and Aristophanes' kind of myth about the proto-humans that were male and female and were, were one or were whole, right? And in a certain sense, they were too powerful or mm-hmm. Zeus was jealous of their harmony, their unity and, and split them, right? And so there's this myth about always trying to find your, your other half. And in a certain sense, that not only kind of, to me, dramatizes this idea of there is no sexual relationship, but also mm-hmm. emphasizes what you just spoke of with respect to the sort of poverty of, of the species. Yes. I mean, in a sense, like, again, what makes me say that I'm in a sense, in a quite specific sense here, a Freudo-Marxist, is this common assumption you find in both psychoanalysis and Marx, that the animal that happens to speak contingently is a incomplete animal, if you want to Mm -hmm. put it like that. Then Mm -hmm. the next step is actually one has to have an immediate critique of that, because, and I think I spelled it out in the not too, there is nothing immediately materialistic about that, one can Mm -hmm. actually come up with a negative anthropocentrism by insisting on this incompleteness, or if you want to be more biological, disadaptation of the animal that happens to speak. So there are many other steps that need to be taken there in order to make sure that the philosophical anthropology that one develops, which is, in a sense, uh, without solution of continuity with a theory of the subject, does not fall back on the old Prometheus Mm -hmm. myth which is at the basis of Western culture. I've been insisting on this, again, like mostly in informal conversations and papers, you know, like humanism has always been anti-humanist in a sense in Mm. Western culture, you know, (laughs) like uh, if you go back to, yeah, well, I mean, there's no Prometheus without Pandora, you know, if you Mm -hmm. go back to the Renaissance, there's no Pico della Mirandola without, uh, again, a reactualization of this Promethean myth, the myth whereby you know, like our incredibly successful adaptation technologically, technically and technologically, linguistically, more generally speaking, is due to something which, and ontologically this is very complicated and problematic, <laughs> which, which, which has gone awry in what we could say is the evolution of the species, you know? Yes. That is something that fascinates me. And I think it contrasts very much, if you want to bring it back to the old question of the human, of the animal that the human animal is, with mm-hmm. a parallel tradition, which is dominant in the 20th century in philosophy, that is to say the Heideggerian one, whereby, yes. you know, yes. like there's the openness of the animal that happens to speak and the closure of, of the non-speaking animal. So it's, it's quite opposite, even though, you know, both can lend themselves to a certain form of anthropocentrism, which needs to be then criticize. I mean, as I said, I mean, there is a risk of a negative anthropocentrism. And this is a point I actually tackle in the second part of the knot too, where I say yes. early Lacan is still, is still flirting with, 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 you know, a bit too much Heidegger there. Yes. And yes. And then, and then there's much more awareness in terms of like, to start off from the premise empirical 
from a clinical setting that we are the fucked up literally animal, you know, like <laughs> that, that's not, that is not a guarantee of materialism and realism per se. Mm. It needs to be problematized further. I can see how it could, it could end up into, gosh, I'm, I'm trying to remember the, one of the, the avatars of Lacan that you fight against. You might need to help me with it. It's, it's, it's a neologism. It's a, it's like an ideal What's the pun? It's like an ideal linguism or it's a, mm. you know, it's, it's, I, I forget it. I forget how you yeah, put yeah, it, yeah. but I, you know, there are, I, as I you said, there's ideal in linguistry. I think, I, I think it's, okay. Buster. Yes. It's but term, by the way. Okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. I, I mean, he's a, I think, but you actually says like Lacan is not just ideal linguistry, you know? Mm, yes. Whereas it's a common accepted opinion in many circles, philosophical circles, that this is what is eventually going on in Lacan. There is a certain form of linguistic idealism. You know, that was Derrida's take on Lacan. However, yes. sympathetic at times, but... Um, yeah. <laughs> but, that, but that's why you, you say it's not a given that Lacan or, or uh, you know, some of the things he says about the speaking being, about the incompleteness, mm -hmm. that it would necessarily lead to a materialism or, or a realism. And uh, I, I forget who your... Uh, one of your friends mentioned, was it, um, oh gosh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna forget his name, but, but you point out this interesting implication of, a, of an idealism without idealism, mm -hmm. something like this, right? And, and this is one yeah. of maybe, this is perhaps a, a point of contention or a slight divergence with Adrian that we don't necessarily have to go into now, but that you yeah. kind of bring up that. The yeah. phrase idealism without idealism, Frank Truda uses it with regard okay. to Badiou as a Hegelian himself, Frank. But I think in a sense, yes, I mean, it can be applied also to the Lacanian territory in a sense. Mm -hmm. There's always like a necessity, even going back to what we were saying earlier about philosophic anthropology and the fact that, that there's always a risk of a negative anthropocentrism. Yes, it is a question of actually coming up with an idealism without idealism. And then the more specific question is like, what is the threshold? Where is idealism sufficiently not idealistic? You know, and that's where I guess like more specific discussions with you know comrades, friends uh, who actually have endorsed quite similar trajectory to mine, mutatis mutandis. I mean, this is where the discussions uh, are ongoing. I mean, Adrian, I think the entire uh, Ljubljana school in Slavo, in particular, to whom I owe a lot, I probably mm -hmm. say just a bit too much German idealism <laughs> in his idealism without idealism. So right, then, right. then it becomes a much more nuanced, distinguished distinction, you know? But yes, I think, I think the, idea of, the idea of, I mean, language is really constraining us. Yes, I mean, thinking an idealism without idealism is the price to be paid in order to actually come up with a materialist and a realist agenda, Lacan's, which is, in a way, still indebted to the Hegelian legacy up to a certain mm -hmm. point. I completely agree with that. And, and your mentioning of, of Zizek here is, is definitely on point. I was very interested in your engagement with him in the Natu specifically, where I believe you bring him up again in, uh, in conversation with, uh, or at least in resonance with Adrian Johnston and mm -hmm. sort of the either or and one of the things that I found fascinating, was, especially as you make clear in your piece on agnostic atheism, which definitely love to get into, is Zizek's at least most recent way of categorizing what he's looking at as a kind of Christian atheism. And that being sort of a part of his materialist project, 
you bring him up in ways that you don't want to just do away with that. There are many mm. things that are admirable, but there's there's some things that you want to think through differently. That would yes. be my categorization. When, when you say that maybe you owe too much to Zizek, do you want to say a little bit about that different route that you're taking with respect to these questions? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, on the one hand, you know, the very slogan Christian atheism remains an oxymoron, isn't it? I mean, uh, intuitive yes. manner. And I think like that is being at least partly forgotten, if not by Slav or by the kind of, you know, quite fashionable wave it triggered off like a decade ago with, with, this, with this slogan, which, mm -hmm. by the way, you know, it's not just a uh, psychoanalytic philosophical one by a Slavo, you know, find very similar positions with regard to the Christian legacy, while in Badiou, mm -hmm. his book on Paul. Yes. Uh, you know, like Paul is the, uh, I was teaching this like at the end of the term, I mean, uh, kind of first year undergrads love it. But anyway, you know, Paul is like the former prototype of the political militant, etc. Yes, you find yes. The same thing in, in Italian New Workerism, St. Francis in, in Negri, etc., etc. My hands-on stance there is like, Christian atheism is still Christian. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. In, in, this is like the entry point into discussion, you know, like, um, mm -hmm. um, why do we need to actually speak of Christian atheism in order to actually address the question of atheism from a materialistic perspective? There is an impasse there. Yes. Now, and that is something that I try to detail, especially in the introduction to the new book. With regard to Slavoj specifically in his project, his take on Lacan and his own very interesting project. Well, A, he's a serious thinker that needs, who needs to be taken seriously. I mean, many people keep on forgetting that. B, I think I've said it recently, I suppose that against his intentions, he will be remembered for mm -hmm. long. He <laughs> stay. But unfortunately, maybe he will be remembered as the last of the postmodernists in terms of like a retroactive temporality. Interesting. I think that is something which, you know, like in a couple of like generations, so people will be better able to identify as, you know, a kind of like transition between postmodernism and whatever else, whatever shit is happening now. <laughs> and, and then there's the question of, you know, like, what are you doing with Lacan? And in this case, clearly, it's like never only Lacan, it's like Lacan, Marx and Hegel fundamentally. Yeah, right? yeah. And then the question is, if the objective is coming up with a new kind of materialist and realist philosophy, which I think is his agenda in a sense, yes. you don't have, even have to specify, is it the dialectical materialism, is it historical, that's too parochial. Yeah, in a sense it is, I mean, given the discussion we're having. So the question is like, what are you doing with Lacan and what are you seeing, going back to your previous question in Lacan, that allows you to promote this materialistic, realistic, if not Freudo-Marxist, agenda. What, especially in the last uh, decade, but maybe, you know, like um, kind of temporalization doesn't make much sense here. Where I disagree with Slavoj is this idea of, I call it the proto-subjective vector. It's been there yes. for a long time, you know, yes. the night of the war, et cetera, et cetera. So the Schellingian aspects of his work, right? The Schelling aspects. Yes. Yeah. You can put it like that, even though, you know, like go back to me, also in writing, uh, I think there was in an, um, to be totally honest with you guys, I, I don't think he's really processed my friendly criticism he took <laughs> personally. And the reply he actually formulated, uh, I think it was in disparities. I, doesn't, I cannot work it out, I don't think. But yes, and that's where he actually comes up with the idea, no, no, you are the Schellingian. So the Schellingian <laughs> 
kind of like, you know, insult becomes tautological because I was saying, basically, you're right. I think there is a Schillingian vein there. Yeah. And, and by the way, Adrian, Adrian Johnston also has reservations as a Zizek and Freudian Marxist uh, about this aspect of Slavoj's work. But then one should better qualify, you know, saying Schellingian, maybe it's not enough. This idea that there is, to be a bit more ontological and philosophical, yes. that it's a question of, to use an old phrase of philosophy of nature. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there something like, Slavoj would call it like a curvature in nature as such? Is nature, I mean, to be now a bit more heavy-handed, is there a difference in nature? Yes. As such, I think this, this is like the different. <laughs> yes. This is the whole point. I mean, is there a kind of like curvature you can investigate it by delving into German idealism or quantum physics? Is there mm-hmm. such thing? Is there such thing? So it's like a heavy, heavy loaded ontological question as difference in nature, regardless of our linguistic and, in a way or another, necessarily anthropocentric project- projections into nature, or is there not? What yes. is the most materialistic way of approaching this question? Is there a risk, to be a bit more specific, to actually project incompleteness into nature as such? Because this right. is what has been a leitmotif of my recent work, and it will be a leitmotif of my future work. This idea of like projecting ontologically onto nature something which instead seems to us agnostically conclusive from a logical, if not formalizing perspective. Right. And also like empirical in a very straightforward manner, if you want to be more psychoanalytical in terms of sexuality, etc. I guess like that is the big question, the difficult to navigate threshold where I'm not always in agreement with Slavoj, and not even with Adrian, because I think in a sense he's more Zizekian than I am on this question. Because <laughs> yes. he's, more, he's more of a Hegelian at the end. And I love that you brought up this question because I think it helps to get into what you formulate in terms of indifference in multiple ways, but specifically hyphenated as you, as you do. Because this question of this proto-subjective vector, I guess what I was interested in, and this is just kind of a basic question or a broad question I think that will help lead our audience in is specifically this proto-subjective vector that you've pointed out in, in Zizek's work, which, you know, you could say it starts with movement or however we can formulate it. But my question is, and they're linked, but you could say the two of the sort of nemeses I see in the not two, amongst many others, is this persistence of animism and... Mm-hmm of vitalism. And Mm -hmm. is this part of your disagreement with sort of with Zizek on this point about whether we speak of nature's difference or indifference and sort of the, is this part of the anthropocentrism you're you're talking about is is kind of this uh, underhanded or sort of subtle clandestine animism? I think you're right, in a sense. Animism and vitalism as declared enemies, in a sense, can be used as a portmanteau word in order to also like, uh, specify and frame more specific disagreements with thinkers who, at the end of the day, are very close to what I think, like Slavoj himself. I think in the not too, if I remember correctly, I actually, and that's something he didn't like at all, but I think I said <laughs> like risk with Slavo's project is that of promoting an animism of the not all. So an yes. animism of incompleteness, which is precisely 
the point uh, I was trying to make earlier is to say this risk of projecting incompleteness as if you want to simplify our transcendental condition in a Kantian sense, in my yes. understanding, yes. onto nature as such. I think there is such a risk in what Zizek is doing. He is, you know, like an incredibly sophisticated thinker. So yes. this vitalism is a bit too much, even though maybe I, I did. But yes, at the end of the day, if going back to this analogy of movement, you know, like yes. there's, there's a basic curvature in nature, however much you want to understand in shelling or quantum physics, isn't there also like a certain kind of vitalism, which I think there isn't in what he's doing, but he lends itself to misappropriations, which, which are at the end of the day vitalistic, specifically when one returns to the much abused question of the so-called lamella in, yes. in Lacan, which is to say the death drive as an in, a repetitive insistence that persists after life and death. That's where the animism of not all runs the risk, the supplementary risk, the additional risk of also fomenting, if not explicitly promoting, some sort of crypto vitalism, which, mm -hmm. by the way, is very present in Freud. Yes. So, that's one of like Freud's limits. He was the son of his science of his time, you know, like the energetics so, of his exactly, of his time. Yes, exactly. And and even in Lacan, I'm not saying like the way I actually dispel this like aspects of Lacan Lacan's work is you know the true Lacan I'm selling. You know, like Lacan is an open work in a way. Yes. And one could, in terms of like exegesis, I mean, one could read Lacan in such a way. But if the reason why you're using, you're using Lacan, forcing, complicating, has to do with promoting a new materialistic and realist agenda, which is what, what all these people are doing, then yeah. I don't see why you need to go into that Lacan, or at least not try to understand it in a different manner. This became extremely clear. I want to ask this brief question and then definitely open up for, for Coop. I, I don't want to hog you to myself, but the, what became very clear to me was the fascinating way you go into Lacan's kind of deconstruction, if I can use that term, of the drive and sort of critiquing Freud's privileging of whether it be called what pressure or pulsion or not. That's, that's the drive. I mean, not pressure, pressure or what sometimes it's just translated as force, strong and saying Lacan kind of teasing out that this can't be understood as a kinetic energy because that. Therein lies part of Freud's vitalism or animism, whichever one more appropriately fits there, but that, that it needs to be understood kind of as a control energy, as a potential energy. And I found that to be fascinating because this is where, and I believe this is Lacan's phrasing, but you can correct me, where I guess we could say the metaphor, the analogy of the river with the dam and, you know, before the dam and the generators are, are turning on, there is, there is this risk if one privileges the drive as sort of moving through kinetic energy that you're sort of again this is that pre-proto-subjective force of the, the sprite yeah. of the current is that Lacan's phrasing yeah, yeah I mean like of course like the analogy he takes it from Heidegger right and yes then, even though then he actually reworks it for his own agenda but yes I think like that analogy fundamentally there is no sprite of the river if you think there is energy before you actually 
build your hydroelectric plant, then you believe in the sprite of the current, which takes us back very literally to animism, right? Yes, yes. I think this is like, this is really like one of the possible ways, perhaps one of the most intuitive to actually distinguish Lacan's basic theory of the driver and what psychoanalysis is from Freud, because there is no way one can argue that in Freud, there is no substantial libido. There is such thing. I mean, ontological yes. libido is free-floating energy. Yes. There's no way one can read exegetically Freud in a different manner. And again, if your agenda is an anti-vitalistic agenda, that is hugely problematic. I completely agree. And I, I had never thought about it so concretely. I guess somewhat I had, though, because in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, when Freud starts to promote this sort of incestuous intertwining of Eros and, and mm -hmm. Thanatos, there is this kind of, Freud sometimes has this, that's his like kind of platonic side. I brought up the symposium earlier that has mm -hmm. this very uh, sort of, and it seems to contradict this notion that Lacan says is, is in Freud, if even if it's unconscious for him, that there is no sexual relation. He seems to be mm -hmm. sort of, he seems to be falling into the fantasy, so to speak, of mm -hmm. there being some sort of union to be to be attained that would not be yeah. a fiction or something like that. Yeah, I think like uh, that's something I tried to actually delve into in the initial chapter of yes. Bodies and Dead with regard to Freud, because at the end of the day, I think in terms of the basics of the theory of the libido in Freud, there are two different veins and they are in tension with one another. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there is what he calls too much instinctual vigor, which, of course, doesn't need any further specification. I mean, what is this instinctual pre-civilized vigor? You know, it's mm -hmm. a very, very old-fashioned form of vitalism. But that goes together in this, instead, the interesting Freud with this idea of helplessness. That's something I try to work out specifically with regard to how he then accounts genealogically for the emergence of, of religion. Is religion actually sort of taming of our too much instinctual vigor? Or is it actually a, a retrospective attempt at coping with helplessness? Clearly, I think yes. the latter. And yes, I think this yes. is what comes out with Lacan developing on Freud. So, yes, I think that is the tension one finds in Freud. And I don't think it's a solvable tension, you know, and one can also simplify and say that is the tension between the materialistic and the vitalistic Freud, which I don't think is surpassable. By the way, something else, you know, like in terms of Taylor, you're going back to the example of, of the dam and the river. Yes. That specifically applies very clearly, you know, like to the um, notion of the libido. And again, yes. Lacan's very clear stance in saying that basically the libido is a symbolic construct. There is no such thing as too much instinctual vigor. As there isn't also like pure helplessness, because otherwise we go back to a, a negative anthropocentrism, right? right? But beyond the theory of the libido, this is very early in Lacan, I think seminar one, Okay. Yeah. It has very nice definitions of life, which are basically computational definitions of, of life. You know, he's flirting with cybernetics in those years. Mm -hmm. So yes. he, he says it might be misread, it's been misread, but his point is like, we don't know what life is. And mm -hmm. this could be like, you know, taken the wrong way. It's been taken the wrong way, but it doesn't matter because what life is, is a computation of inputs and outputs in terms of metabolism. It's the same right. point, isn't it? It's the same point as the point about 
how can you believe as a scientist or a philosopher that actually there is energy before you actually block the river? Okay, right. it's the same thing as believing in the sprite of the river. It's the same. Yes. And it reminds me, this question about life reminds me a lot of Nietzsche's reflections on sort of trying to ward off any valuations of life from within life because we're, mm-hmm. we're judge, jury, and executioner, so we're biased. And all that does is, is sort of reveal our values to us when we, when we value life or put a value on, on the meaning of life, even in a bigger sense. Yeah, this is, this is good. This might be jumping ahead a little bit, but I was just curious, I think particularly with relevance to um, God is Undead, I was curious your level of engagement with La Ruelle's works, just because I think some of the, you know, he's wrestling with, I, it feels like at least at some stages of his work, a lot of the same issues, you know, concepts like the one, the not one, God without being, his sort of, you know, the way that he kind of takes on and says, sort of tries to reassert, you know, scientism as related to non-philosophy or non-philosophy as a science. So I'm just kind of broadly yeah. curious. Um, no, because I feel really... like there'd be an interesting dialogue or like a yeah. foil to what you've written. Yeah. I mean, like before we went on air, like uh, as, mm-hmm. as Taylor was saying, I mean, like, uh, and thanks for that, you know, like you said, like, okay, you have your reservations on the translation of the future Christ, right? To be honest, that's a book I actually, I, I'm not a specialist on that way. Sure. Right. That's a book I read carefully in translation, by the way, which I don't <laughs> usually do. And I was trying to crack it in terms of like, at least creating a good long footnote. Yes. I think the problem there is not that there is a shortage of possible dialogue between what Lacan does, or at least what I do with Lacan and Laval. It has to do with the terminology. It has yes. to do with the terminology because they use, you're right, I mean, concepts like you, you, you write down in your notes, the one, known one, the real, etc. The real, right? yes. Yeah, yes. But, but, but the problem is like they are too similar. And as, yes. when, you, when you are trying to use them in a different way, it becomes really difficult to proceed with your, you know, standard pedantic but detailed compare and contrast. Yes. Right. I was saying it to a PhD student or applicant of mine. I mean, that's a PhD thesis that I would very much like to supervise because it, yes. it's, you need to have like, you know, like a lot of patience yes. uh, in terms of like textual exegesis to make sure that you are able to highlight the possible connections, and there are many, but at the same time, cautiously pinpointing the fact that there are some basic philosophical concepts which are terminologically the same, but used in opposite manners. So I think that is the limitation I actually, the obstacle I bumped against when I was trying to, if not carry out detailed work on La Ruelle, at least try to create some specific links between his stuff on the end of the day, religion and Christianity and what I'm doing right. via, via Lacan. Yeah. yeah, I would say that if you do return to trying to craft that footnote, there is a book published in the late 90s that is specifically on Laurel and Lacan by Didier Moulinier. And if you return to that interest, because I do think Laurel is a reader of Lacan very closely, and you're right, though, I mean, because he calls the one, he, he talks about the one in terms of the real. I know that the way it would become hair splitting, right? About, yeah. about terminology and that could, that could stand in the way. But, but he very much gets this notion of the real as unsymbolizable and, and sort of foreclosed to thought and these other things. It's very clear that he's, he's taking some of those terms and some of that 
conceptual thinking from directly from no, there, there is much there is much to be developed again in terms of like a detail compare and contrast which is not you know an end in itself but right. it actually right. promotes new questions so in a way even in terms of like i'm already aware i'm beyond well like and says i'm you know that's yes. threshold using an author to actually create your own philosophical terminology and try to do it as as carefully as possible. That's why the comparing contrast with Laruel, even though I actually myself intuited that as constructed, was problematic because the terms are the same, but they're used in, or very similar at least, but they're yes. used in very different ways, if not opposite, to the best of my understanding. Some of them can, I, I believe. There are a lot of divergences and, uh, and, and some of the work that's, I mean, obviously it's available in French, but some of the work that is Clearly, who even calls it non-analysis or generalized analysis, mm. all of those key works are, haven't been translated yet. So that's, you can add that down the road once you've tackled your, your other projects yeah. that, that you have. Um, no, but it's definitely, you know, like high up in my, in my list agenda of things to do, maybe in an article. But again, I mean, like it does require quite a lot of time in terms of like, you know, I've read Laruel at different points in the last mm -hmm. 15 years but never systematically enough, to be honest with you. I wondered about, I had wondered about that too, as per, you know, Cooper's question, because you mentioned in either the introduction or the first chapter of, of God is Undead, of your agnostic atheism, about maybe an overzealous critique against you and, and Ray Brazier. And so I'd wondered if, mm. if, uh, if your, you know, your, your friendship or your, you know, your acquaintanceship with Brazier had, had already kind of gotten your interest in, in his translations. And no, uh, absolutely. I mean, Ray is a dear friend. I mean, I originally, yeah. you know, studied reading a while because of Ray. Yeah. But to the best Same. of my knowledge, he's not, he's not really working on that well no. at the moment. So, no. You know, the funny complication is like, once you actually introduce Laruel in the equation, then it becomes like a triangulation with Badiou. Yeah, it does. Not only, on, not only on the question of like, you know, traditional philosophical concepts like the one, the not one, the real, etc. <laughs> yeah. But also the old question of anti-philosophy, philosophy, non-philosophy, mm -hmm. etc. <laughs> That's right. Which, at least in terms of the, what has been quite extensively written on, you know, like Badiou, anti-philosophy, Lacan is an anti-philosopher. There are good things around, but I think it's become a quite sterile discussion in a sense of thing you know like at the end of the day even if you go through Lacan but use a seminar on Lacan you know is anti-philosophy for but you really not philosophy so you see my point it becomes like a, a terminological error splitting yes question which might have been productive some time ago I'm not sure it is any longer you know like I'm, I think at one point in, in God isn't that I say you know like with Lacan, you have an anti-philosophical anti first philosophy, which is an oxymoron, of course. You know, like, <laughs> it, but you can, they, this is a consequence of a certain dissatisfaction with, with you know, air splitting, but perhaps not precise enough considerations yeah. that have been made over the last decade on this question of anti-philosophy, which, which perhaps in Badiou himself is a bit misleading. Somehow. Yes. Yes. I, I like how you put that. And it is interesting to think about this question, which I found fascinating. And I'd, I'd love to, to hear just to kind of, again, as you mentioned, this is just an informal, just 
just a chat. I, I, what I found fascinating was this notion of a God who deceives himself, which Lacan himself kind of brings up, but you, you do a lot of work with this notion of a self-deceiving God. And just for, for the listeners, I guess, do you want to sort of go into this? Because you even mentioned that within Descartes, yeah. there is this implication, if you extend him further out, as you do, that even within Descartes, there is this self-deceiving God as a, as a possibility. And I, yeah. I'm wondering about that because it, it definitely seems fundamental to some of your explorations. Yeah, I mean, like, the question of the self-deceiving God, for me, is becoming more and more central. I was already hinting at that in the not two, but I think yes. what the not two doesn't do well enough is distinguishing between the deceiving God and the self-deceiving God. So this yes. is more recent work. And certainly the notion of the self-deceiving God will not just be confined to this like interven intervention on the question of atheism and agnosticism. It will stay with me even in the development of the project of indifference. Mm, yes. Why? Very schematically, why? So I call it weak atheism, a form of atheism, which is, to be very blunt, content with the assumption that there is no one, that God yes. is not. Yes. From there, I actually dwell on how such form of atheism is weak precisely insofar as it absolutizes the truth of incompleteness, if you want right. to be a bit more technical. So what you are positing in terms of the inevitability of not having some sort of like metalinguistic reference, what you're positing is the one that encircles the not one. Right. And that I call like a deceiving God. So I'm basically saying a lot of interesting contemporary philosophies, philosophers who are actually dealing very, very closely with religion and the legacy of Christianity beyond the question of a Christian atheism, like Mayasu, for instance, tend to actually fall back into the, you know, unassumed position of the deceiving God. Yes. The farther step is the following. So the farther step is the one the one is not really the most precise term I, I could have used, but how do you avoid the question of reifying the truth of incompleteness, i.e. the yes. statement ontologically speaking, the not one is. And at one point, and this is what I call my either or, the question in order to move beyond a certain kind of like uh, watered down Kantianism and a kind of weak agnosticism that basically renouncing thinking the being of incompleteness as our human transcendental horizon, you have, two, you have two options left. Either the not one is conclusively, and the fact that we cannot conclusively say is just because of the structure of our transcendental, the inevitability yes. of, in a sense, evoking a metalinguistic level, or... The not one in the end is one, which is what religion has always said. But, and I get to your point, your question about the self-deceiving God. I, I get at the self-deceiving God by asking myself the question from the linguistic qua transcendental truth of incompleteness as our, to the best of our knowledge, conclusive human horizon. What is the most rational way of understanding the not one is the one. So either the not one is, full stop, 
But as soon as I say full stop, I'm actually promoting implicitly the one. And if I don't acknowledge it, that is a one as a deceiving God. Yes. Guarantees there is no God. Or the most rational way, an irrational way of saying the no one is in the end the one could be a Christian way, not the most, but one way. It's like there is salvation somehow. Yes. That's religion. The most rational way of positing the possible oneness of the not one is what I call the self-deceiving God. And then the question becomes more nuanced and difficult because Lacan evokes this figure. He goes as far as musing about the idea of a God that does not believe in God or a God that doesn't know he's God. I yes. had this conversation recently with especially Dominic Huens, who rightly pointed out to me that something I still need to develop in my project is the distinction between a stupid God and a self-deceiving God. Yes, yes, because yes. this is not exactly the same thing. So this is still work to be done. But the ground I covered and the centrality attributed to the figure of the self-deceiving God has to do with the fact that rationally moving from the truth of incompleteness as derived from psychoanalysis or mathematical logic, if you wish. Right, yes. You end up with a, I call it, metacritical alternative, which is rationally undecidable. Either the yes. not one is conclusively, but you cannot say it all. Yes. Mm-hmm. Lacan, truth can only be upset. This is the point. Yes. You always yes. evoke a metalinguistic level which is religious as such, even if you don't believe in God, or the not one is eventually one. And you have all religions. But what is a figure through which one can think the oneness of the not one, which is the not oneness of the one? So Mm -hmm. we are no longer on what I call the critical transcendental alacant level of an oscillation between the one and the not one. Right, yes. I believe I'm me, but at times I don't recognize myself in the mirror. I mean, just to <laughs> simplify. Mm? Yes, yes, yes. What I'm trying to think through the figure of the self-deceiving God is a imminent, is a bit too much in a sense, because it, this is a both, it's an indistinction between transcendence and imminence. Yes. You have a full equation of the one and the not one, not an oscillation which is what characterizes our transcendental linguistic condition, but right. a fully equation. And another important here, I'm actually problematizing myself. Something else I have to figure out, I'm not sure when, but hopefully soon, is <laughs> how one navigates the relationship between inconsistency and incompleteness here. Yes, yes. And that's actually, you know, my privileged interlocutor there, also dear friend is Paul Livingston, who has been working on this for a long time. I'm not sure is alternatives, you know, like either you're thinking consistent uh, completeness or incomplete consistency. I'm not yes. sure this is where I'm going. I don't, yes. I don't think so. There is work to be done there because the self-deceiving God is neither an inconsistent completeness nor an incomplete consistency, which would, would be like Paul's two options. Right, um, right. But then... One needs to articulate things, Father, which is work to be done. But what remains for me really crucial here is the ultimate rational undecidability between either, if you want to translate it in less numerical terms, indifferences at yes. the end of the day, to go back to, you know, like my 
sort of like problem with with curvature in nature mm -hmm. or whatever this is too much mm. yes yes either indifferences or the self-perceiving god is that's where i am the moment and then it needs to be much 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 more thoroughly articulated but that's the strong agnosticism correct that indecidability yeah. and it's yes. and it's the further consequence which is obviously a critique of weak atheism and weak agnosticism and pushes it to its limit but following that you posit a strong atheism whereby you can eventually sort of i think you put it in in a practical i'm not sure if you call it a decision or but through a practical decision thereby discard the notion of of the self-deceiving God. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. I call it like an anti-Pascalian wager. Yes, that's right. I love that. I, do you want to say a, a word or two about that? And, well, and, and, do yeah. as if the self-deceiving God right. were not. Yes. But the, undecided, the rational undecidability between either the not one is or the self-deceiving God is conclusive. So that's where we are at the threshold between theory and practice, if you wish, or between ontology and ethics and politics. Yes. On the basis of Lacan, beyond Lacan, ethics and politics should be, then we can be much more specific, an ethics and politics of incompleteness. Yes. But one has to guard oneself against the falling back into weak atheism that a frontal absolutization of incompleteness entails, which has also ethical and political implications. So the do as if there were no self-deceiving God goes together at the same time with the preservation of the either or on a theoretical level. Interesting. Because otherwise there's a continuous like risk of falling back into precisely what I'm criticizing. Uh, the weak atheism. Like weak, or no, even better, a strong weak atheism. A strong weak that's right, that's what you call which, it, yes. Which would be for me, Mayasu. Because let's be honest, I mean, at the end of the day, we had like a decade of like Mayasu mania. Yes, now, we did. I, I don't know what about you guys, but I'm hearing more and more people who haven't read Mayasu just bullshitting about Mayasu in terms of like really like saying he's a terrible philosopher. He's not. No, no, he's not. He, he's not. He, he has like, a, especially in the divine and existence and this idea of human and resurrection, that needs to be taken fucking seriously. Yes. So that would be for me, as I said, like a clear example of strong with atheism. And that which, what I'm trying to think, is always in a sense in danger of falling back into my wife, she's, a, she's an artist and a poet. She's, she's brilliant, but philosophy is just not her interest. But she very intuitively grasped, because I, I choose very, very wisely which topics to bring up with her in terms of philosophy. And I brought up your move from weak atheism and weak agnosticism to strong agnosticism and therefore strong atheism. And she kind of intuitively grasped this notion that, well, obviously weak atheism in the end is, is just a reinstatement of belief, right? So, it, mm -hmm. so it, it's, just a, it's just a reinstatement of religion, even if it is anti-religion, mm. it's, it's still the same thing. And you kind of work through some of this, obviously with your reading of Freud and um, Future of Illusion and, and Moses and Monotheism. That's why I think like with my, I was trying to work through some of this stuff with my reading of Laura Well, because atheism mm -hmm. precisely for that reason was always at least the, uh, the kind of stereotype or the, 
popular versions of atheism that are more mainstream that I found so dissatisfying is because, you know, there's with Laura Well, what I what I got to was what I was calling, and this is just my own bullshitting of Laura Well to a certain extent, or just how how it affected me. It was a non-theism whereby the mm. the question of whether God exists or not is sort of in your terms, in the agnosticism, yes, you could say it's undecidable, but to a certain extent, it's it's not the correct problem to fetishize. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, I, I didn't mean to bring it back to Laurel. I was just I was just kind of oh, it's fine. Thinking through this, and what's what's interesting too, I'm and again, I'll, I'll ricochet to, to Cooper in a second. The last thing I wanted to say, at least for the moment, on this was you have this interesting on page ninety four. This is chapter three of the not two where you talk about Lacan, and I'll give you a second if, if you'd like to look, you talk about the, the yeah. most noticeable limit of Lacan's theory of sexuation. I think that what is in question in, the, in this context is Lacan, the relativistic historicist temptation, which is, I believe, this, yeah. uh, this question of the axiom that there is no sexual relationship, yeah. whether it... Whether no, it's like- Lacan has these temptations of falling into historicizing it or not, or yeah. whether it be transhistorical or relativizing it, which I think would get us back to sort of foisting incompleteness onto nature in a way in which it would get us back to what we discussed earlier, right? Yeah. With this kind of negative anthropocentrism. Do you want to say a little bit about just this, this, yeah, I guess, this most I mean, noticeable I mean, limit? Yeah, yeah. I mean... I guess what is a state there, not just specifically with regard to the uh, axiom of incompleteness, that is to say there is no sexual relationship, not generally in terms of like Lacan's take on history. I think what is a state there is the huge question of the relationship between structure and history. Okay. And I've been working, I told you about, you know, like, new reading of the theory of discourses. And there's a point where Lacan, in Seminar 17, if I'm not wrong, or Seminar 16 says, and this has been totally forgotten in a sense, that you know, mm. he doesn't see how a structuralist approach in his own terms goes against any kind of take on history. Okay. And I guess this is like the field where we are moving here beyond the specificities of, of, of chapter three of, of the not two. So the question is, if our transcendental our linguistic transcendental yes. is what the species contingently in a Darwinian manner is, has to do with the so-called absence of the sexual relationship, which has to do, it's not synonymous, but to simplify with the truth of incompleteness. Is this the transcendental of the species? Mm-hmm. So up to a certain point, unchangeable, and then one can go into, the, into a discussion about, well, but it could be another species, but without falling into like shit transhumanism, but this is an interesting discussion. Or is the transcendental we've been discussing, that is to say the equation between the fact of language and the absence of a sexual relationship is historicizable. Yes. And I think that because of like Lacan's agenda, or at least what I want to do in my agenda with Lacan's agenda, strong take on this question in terms of saying, no, the absence of a sexual relationship is the transcendental of the species is more consistent than a kind of quasi, if you wish, early Foucauldian 
drift into, well, there is the transcendental of modernity, and right. there is the transcendental of pre-modernity, and there, I'm really simplifying here. But I guess this is what is at stake. The stake what is at stake is the animal that happens to speak as it's Kantian, in a Kantian, loose Kantian sense, condition of possibility necessarily has as a transcendental the absence of the sexual relationship, yes or no. And what I'm saying in terms of like the limit of Lacan is that it develops two alternative narratives there, one of right. which I find more convincing than the other. Yes. Well, yeah, you I, can also like, you know, like you can also in terms of history of philosophy, you can also, it's a very similar question, very similar issue. You can also express what I've just said in terms of, and I'm paraphrasing closely, Lacan, did Socrates have an ego? It's the same question, isn't it? <laughs> yes. So when you actually meet, to go back to your reference to the uh, symposium, you know, it's clearly like there's no electric light, it's a very dark room, whatever. <laughs> did Socrates have an ego, an ego mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, like what follows historically in a very mundane empirical manner from Descartes' systematization of, of, of the cogito? Or, or did he not? If right. not, is that the same species? Because in right, a sense, you right. see, like, if you start saying, um, well, but Socrates did not have an ego, which is a much stronger claim than saying, well, we don't really know what Aristotle was doing with the metaphysics, right? Like, <laughs> right. No, no, that, that, that's this is much stronger, right? Yes. Because you, you are basically saying your sense of to simplify personhood or self-identity is a modern construct, an early mm. modern construct. That is the historicist temptation. That is, in a sense, the historicist temptation, which, again, because of Lacan's materialist and realist agenda, or at least my appropriation of it in a materialist and realistic way, is a big problem because otherwise the question is then, well, if Socrates didn't have an ego, who was Socrates? I was Socrates thinking of Socrates. You see my point? I mean, it's really easy to fall back into a historicistic relativism, both epistemologically and ontologically. And I, I, I find that is at that end at the end of yeah. the day. I didn't read as much of the Nazi as Taylor. So do forgive me on this point, That's but right. I was curious that um, it seemed like to me, at least, maybe implied that the Schreber case was kind of a jumping off point for this, you know, this entire line of thought, because it's dealing with both notions of like sexuation a little bit mm -hmm. relative to Schreber's mm -hmm. becoming woman, and also this discussion of God and Schreber. Mm -hmm. The reason that I bring that up in particular is because there's one instance or one thing that Schreber says about his God that he's dialoguing with that has always stood out in my mind and felt sort of related was that God does not understand the living. God only mm. understands the dead. And mm. so that reminded me a little bit of this discussion stemming from Moses and monotheism about the God of Moses. Also, just on a side note, I think this kind of anthropological history of the development of religion itself is just to me a very fascinating point on its own. And just the mm. way that I guess the different types of religions, you know, address desire and so forth. But I don't know if you could speak to the Schreber case's influence on your work, and maybe yeah. then, you know, secondarily, does this idea, this notion of kind of, I guess, I don't know, the idiot God or the ignorant God, how does that play into yeah, that yeah. dialogue? No, I do not go back to Schreber in the um, God is Undead book, 
But in the introduction to the Not 2, I actually refer to Schreber. So in a sense, like Schreber was, well, of course, like amazing book, right? Amazing yes. autobiography. Quite scary at times, actually, if you read it very closely. That was one of my entries into the question. At that point, it was not really clear what I was meaning by deceiving God and self-deceiving God. So absolutely, and I'm basically saying, if I recall correctly, you know, when Lacan speaks about the foundation, this is a historical matter of fact in terms of the history of ideas, the foundation of modernity in terms of like modern philosophy on the suspension, if not repression, of the possibility that God is a deceiving God with Descartes, I'm saying he also has in mind Schreber. He spent an entire year commenting on Schreber where he brings out this idea of modernity being based on the evocation and the repression of the deceiving God, not yet the self-deceiving, and right. basically saying Einstein is not beyond, right. not beyond Descartes. We are still there. So our right. science is based on that still. Now, in Schreber, I think, you do have instead already a delineation of the question of the self-deceiving God. I'm talking about not Freud on Schreber or Lacan on Schreber, yeah. but I should reread it, but... You know, there is one passage where basically Schreber's God is discussed by Schreber as a God that goes against the order of the world. That's right. Yeah. So it's a God that goes against, it's a God that goes against God. So this is no longer a question of a kind of supposedly polarized alternative between the good God and the bad God, God and the devil etc., etc. It's actually a question of an identity. The order of the world is against the order of the world. <laughs> yes. The one is the not one that is the one that mm. is the not one. I think there is that intuition in Schreber's rendition of yes. his psychosis. But this is, a, what I, this is what I think Lacan takes seriously and I take even more seriously because going back to what we were saying with Taylor earlier, this is for me, in a sense, one of actually two final, extremely rational possibilities about being, mm -hmm. about being itself. And I think that's why Cooper included this quote, the I am that I am of, of the God of Moses, right? This, this kind of ultimate pronouncement. It's interesting to think that God could be deceiving himself that I am that I am, right? In, in, in saying this, there, there is this this gets us back to this undecidability and uh, and even this this interesting notion about God is the unconscious that Lacan formulates. Yeah, now that's interesting relative to, you know, and like you said, Freud doesn't really bring up the races, the racial elements. And I think this might have been what Lorenzo was referring to as the sort of scary elements of, of the Schreber autobiography. Mm. But, you know, this is something that Deleuze and Guattari take, take mm. you know, they spend a lot of time on working out that I think that, that's very interesting, right? It would be sort of this unconscious thing that's sort of brewing in the, uh, I mm -hmm. guess, the, the body without organs, if you will, of Germany mm -hmm. at large or whatever, the, whatever you would want to call it. I think I confined this point to a long footnote because the book was becoming too long and uh, <laughs> right, it, yeah, it has exactly. to be developed elsewhere. But, you know, like um, God is unconscious on a second I would call it metacritical level, has to do with the question of the self-deceiving God. Yes. Because the first level, which is pretty straightforward, that is to say, nominal atheists 
are formal believers, right? This is the point about God is unconscious. Yes. If I say there is no God, the not one is, I am metalinguistically invoking what I was saying before in terms of weak atheism, the one that guarantees that the not one is. So in a sense, there is in Lacan an exploration of the fact, and I think Zlavo is very good. He wrote about this like in the early 2000, you know, on belief, et cetera, the puppet and the dwarf. This idea that belief has a formal structure. It's not just a matter of like, what you believe, you believe, as Lacan puts it. Yes, yes. You can believe in not believing, right? That would be like a straightforward, stupid definition of weak atheism, right? But then the question of God is unconscious has to do with what I was saying earlier in terms of like work yet to be done or specifying what is to think ontologically a one that is without solution of continuity and not one which is without solution of continuity, a one, et cetera, et cetera. Because the question of not knowing oneself, I think is pretty limiting for a number of reasons. It is a question of truth, and we go back to Descartes, but it can also be formulated in terms of the unconscious. I mean, maybe like what I'm trying to develop, and I'm not too attached to this formula, very abused by now, God is unconscious. <laughs> what I'm trying to develop with the idea of the self-deceiving God is an amplification of this formula or a rehabilitation or a expansion of this Lacanian formula, God is unconscious, for which to say that God does not believe in God, the possibility of a God that does not believe in God, as Lacan says, is not really enough. Because then Interesting. You, have really, you have to triangulate the distinction between knowledge, deceit, and truth. And that is, yes, complicated, but also in a sense it begs the question because, you know, the distinction between knowledge and truth is already there in Descartes' attempted solution to what he could not solve, at least to say, the repression of the evocation of the deceiving God. As I read it by reading Lacan, that was the most fun part for me. I mean, not, not perhaps the most original, but most fun part of the book, because, you know, the nerdy part, when you actually realize that this apparently outlandish reading of Descartes, that is to say, for Descartes, divine truth is the suspension of the law of non-contradiction, to put it very simply. This is actually very much present in non-hegemonic, but mainstream Cartesian literature, Frankfurt, you know? I mean, this is not stuff you teach your undergrads. <laughs> there are early modern scholars that come quite, that, that was my nerdy discovery because I'm not by training like an early modern right. um, scholar. That was quite surprising to actually see how the way in which Lacan seems in my reconstruction to read Descartes Yes. And the way in which I developed that reconstruction finds echoes in minoritarian, but very authoritative, some very authoritative Descartes scholars like Harry Frankfurt, for instance. I mean, it is interesting to think that this question of the suspension of non-contradiction goes very well with, with how Freud thinks of the unconscious and, and Lacan, right? That the unconscious doesn't, you know, doesn't recognize negation you know, non-contradiction isn't, isn't really at play on a certain level. And this is also like obviously something that Zlavoj has been saying for two decades at least. Here I would say Descartes, this kind of Descartes, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is, can be substantiated actually, goes beyond Freud. 
Because, you know, the fact that this is interesting, the fact that you actually say this is not my mother to go back to the classical example. And this means like this is my mother. Right. Yes. 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 You know, but in Freud's, if you want to put it like that, philosophical anthropology, that is a language game. Yes. Ontologically for Freud, we'll go back to the previous point. There is libido. This is real. You see my point? I mean, for Freud, yes, the fact that the unconscious knows no law of contradiction is an epiphenomenon of something called libido at the end of the day, right? Interesting, interesting. Whereas what you actually find in Descartes through this kind of outlandish interpretation, which can be backed up textually in Descartes, is the idea that I'm really simplifying, and there's a lot of scholarly literature to contest this and also to make distinctions, the idea that the eternal truth mountain with valley is as eternally truth, potentially at least, as mountain without valley. This is like a, a, an example that yes. Descartes makes, or two plus two equals five. In terms of like thinking outside of the box ontologically, this is really radical stuff still today. You know, Descartes' distinction, I mean, I'm opening a bit up here, I'm taking too much for granted maybe, which can be substantiated by textual, textual evidence, clearly there's a hidden agenda here, but Descartes' distinction between knowledge and truth, that is to say, truth is at the end of the day, God's business, as Lacan puts it. And it's only on the basis of this distinction between knowledge and truth that it can be in modern science in a Cartesian Galilean manner. That is to say, the question is no longer securing our knowledge, hence science and technology, on God's truth. Truth is God's business. Yeah. And two plus two equal five, I'm really simplifying here, as potentially no lesser ontological status than two plus two equals four really simplifying here but just to maybe engage uh some of the listeners if they want to go into you know even <laughs> just Lacan, not not even just lacan's like understanding of basically descartes epistemologically founding modern science on the separation between knowledge as human knowledge and truth but even you know like rereading like descartes especially letters mostly i mean letters to Mersen and others i mean it's fascinating Interesting. Yeah. This too is interesting because I've always seen, and and you can you can contest this if you feel like it's uh it's a little wrong-headed. I've always seen kind of a, a tension between Badu's understanding of knowledge and truth versus Lacan's. And mm. precisely maybe on this, maybe one way to get into this just really quickly is this question where Badu might say in his formulation of truth, which implies the rarity of the subject and fidelity that then would that be a kind of disagreement with Descartes on this point, right? That the truth would imply a human intervention. No, no, no. I I see your point. I mean, by the way, I mean, but due to the best of my knowledge, in logical words, I think the doctrine of eternal truth in Descartes is arguably for scholars, one of the weakest, usually taken to be weakest points of, the system, right? Interesting. I mean, even, even Hippolyte, no, 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 it's not Hippolyte, it's Coiré. I mean, Jan Coiré, and Lacan is very indebted to Coiré, 
wrote about in his book on, on Descartes, he says fundamentally, I mean, this is shit Descartes. You know, like, <laughs> this is not Descartes as the founder of algebraic geometry and, you know, like advancements in optics, et cetera, et cetera. This is the medieval scholastic Descartes. Uh, you, to just close my circle, but yeah. you praises, if I remember correctly, precisely the doctrine of the eternal truths. Yes. The most outlandish aspect of Cartesian philosophy, according to the normal interpretation in logics of word. Now, with the question of, but you and Lacan vis-a-vis knowledge and truth, this difficult question, in a sense. It's really difficult. We can I bypass mean, it, but, you know. Well, to keep it, like, very minimal, in a sense, like, there is a separation of knowledge and truth in the yes. view, which, yes. which is also very much present in Lacan, independently of his reading of, of, his reading of Descartes, right? Yes. You know, like with Patiou, the... I end up always repeating this point. I think, but he is a very good reader of Lacan, generally speaking. Yes. But nonetheless, he's perhaps more indebted to Lacan than he admits it. This is what I keep on repeating. So I'm never convinced by, at least given the way in which I read the philosophical Lacan, I'm never convinced at the, about the threshold, which is always there in Badiou, whereby methodologically says, so far so good with Lacan, but no, from now on, <laughs> this is me, this is but you, right? I'm always tempted to actually move the line there, move the threshold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that would also apply to knowledge and truth, but I, maybe I don't want to go too much into that. I was just thinking about how, you know, where Badu says truth pierces a hole in knowledge, right? And this is all in his theory of the subject and... Uh, Maybe not in the book. I've been thinking of being an event, but this is kind of his formulation. I also think about how Lacan has it more thinking of like the truth, the product of the university discourse is this production of knowledge, which in the end is, which in the end, qua philosophy is kind of fueling uh, an alibi for the state and its legitimacy. So like I see some, some interesting tensions there with just this formulation but again, we don't have to go too much into it. No, I mean, just... like, uh, without, without going to the fear of discourses, because then the relationship between truth and knowledge is more complicated. Because yes. truth, <laughs> truth is a position, knowledge is not. Truth right. in Lacan's theory of discourses is a discursive place or position. Knowledge is an element. So that's complicated. Right. But in terms of actually, you know, sort of like straightforward, naive take on the relationship between truth and knowledge in Badiou, whereby, as you said, like, Truth is that which pierces knowledge, pierce, you know, tears a hole in knowledge. This is very Lacanian. Yes, yeah, true. You know, like... Uh, Incompleteness, for example. Truth, exactly. Tr- yeah. Absolutely. Truth yeah. is that which denotes, if you not denotes, emerges as the incompleteness of knowledge, as the sort of like self-contradictory movement through uh, which you attempt to accumulate, if not totalize knowledge, fails. Right. Um, so on that level, but yeah, I mean, I'm, it's not just about you and, and Lacan. I mean, like um, Althusser's theory of discourses, however, only outlined. I mean, it's not that far, is it? So a bit of like a cultural, historical constant there. You know? mm-hmm. I mean, truth is not knowledge, and the two notions need to be thought epistemologically, if not ontologically, as obviously related, but as distinct, I think. This made me think of a term that you use in the not too at least in the beginning, and I'm not sure if it's Lacan or if it's you, or if it's you highlighting it and emphasizing it, this notion of an ontotautology. And this, what I was thinking of was, for example, the, um, 
this push to totalize knowledge, as, as you're pointing out, reminds me of one of the pushes, which may or may not still be a tendency. I assume it is, but I'm not sure in physics to find the grand unifying theory, right? The kind of one, the one, you could call it like a God equation or something that mm-hmm. would, that would sort of encapsulate all equations. This is kind of the, still the tendency of modern science, this onto tautology. Yeah, it is. Like uh, through what I named then, like a negative word vision or negative Weltanschauung. I mean, there is still a tendency towards onto tautology, even though it could be in a way, you know, masked. It is masked by yes. uh, complex theories of chaos or whatever. I mean, like, yes, I see that. But this is also the point you are referring to onto tautology, onto theotautology as well. Yes, yes. I mean, this is again where Badiou Lacan are very, very close because, and maybe it goes back full circle. We go back full circle to the first questions you were asking me about my interest in Lacan. Uh, yeah. Why is he still topical? What does Badiou do, especially in being an event? I mean, he's basically saying this. I'm really here speaking very freely, but yeah. he's basically saying Western metaphysics has been, in a sense, hegemonically an ontotology. Yes. What is it trying to do? It's trying to actually separate being from the question of the one. And this is what Lacan is doing, mutatis mutandis. And he actually says it problematically a number of times. The whole question here is separating being from one. In a sense, Western metaphysics has been in different, various, more or less successful manners, always an attempt at short-circuiting the question of the one with the question of being. And right. Onto-tautology or onto-theotautology. So I guess like that would be basic level where but you and Lacan are really close. Yeah. Even though clearly Lacan's project is not an ontological project. He's definitely not indifferent to it. I mean, he's definitely engaging with it and, and it makes it clear in his, uh, especially in the later seminars, but I'm sure all throughout, which is why, as you said, even though it's not inevitable to lead to a materialism or a realism, there are definitely strong indications for, and this is, again gets back to the question about the, the viability of Lacan for, for philosophical thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, especially, yes, in and around Seminar 19, Seminar 20, in a more cryptic manner, that's why Lacan resorts to Frege, yep. if not to set theory, messing up things, but this is the same thing. <laughs> I mean, what is set theory for Badiou? It is an apparatus that allows us to actually think being as not short-circuited with the one. This right. is the point. And it's for similar reasons, however, ultimately aimed at the clinic, maybe, maybe not, that Lacan both resorts to set theory getting lost into it most of the time. <laughs> it's the same thing with like why he actually creates his own version of Fragan notation logic, because in a sense, it allows you to actually go beyond the linguistic rendition of ontotautology, which is the Aristotelian understanding of the copula, subject plus an attribute. You know, yes. Like what quantifiers in logic arguments allow you to do as is precisely in a way approaching the question of well the one 
and the many, the question of existence and a fortiori the question of being via something which is not necessarily onto the tautology. I know that we can start wrapping up and, and maybe just one or two more questions. We've had you for, for two hours and I know it's, the e- it's evening over there. I know that, Coop, do we want to ask maybe this final question about, about meta-language? This seems to be like another central sort of axes, I think maybe in particular more so in God is Undead. Perhaps could you just discuss a little bit about, you know, just broadly this relation, like the meta-language or lack thereof and its implications for agnostic atheism? Going back to what we were discussing earlier, I think the question about weak atheism has to do with the fact that it does not acknowledge the fact that any claim about the incompleteness of language, if you want to put it like that, necessarily entails the evocation of a meta-language. So as soon as I say the one is not, this is meta-linguistically guaranteed into the one that guarantees that the one is not. Hence, in Lacan, you have the used and abused dictum about truth being only half sayable, right? Because... If I say the truth is the truth of incompleteness, then not one is, this already entails a one that guarantees that no oneness somehow. Right. So my wager, if you wish here, is to try to understand this implication, metalinguistic implication of any direct expression of incompleteness in terms of a transcendental structure in a loosely Kantian sense. That is to say, this is what calls together with the fact that we are linguistic animals. This inevitable evocation of a meta-language is structurally, if not biologically, what we are. And then the divide between what is biological and what is structural is also like an interesting one. We are not talking about a divide, but but an overlapping. Not sure if I answer your question, but it relates to I think you did. I, I, the way I've always understood this, and you can, you can correct, correct me or, or, or add on to it, is this insistence, Lacan saying there is no meta-language, is that as though there could be some position outside, right, mm-hmm. that would guarantee the whole truth, and that would, that would be able to, mm-hmm. whether it be a God position or just some observer from nowhere, right, that could mm-hmm. say, yes, that this statement is, is true or the statement is false, as though there were some position outside language that could guarantee the propositionality. And I think this is precisely what, why you were mentioning this move to Frege in a way that would dissociate the copula from logic and sort of de-essentialize it. To go back to my more per- personal project where I'm going and what I aim at developing, you cannot say, again, the not one is full stop because the full stop necessarily brings with it a metalinguistic evocation. This is the other side of what you're saying. I mean, there is no other of the other means that there is no metalanguage. Right. One side of the coin. But the fact that there is no metalanguage is the same as the fact that you inevitably fall back into metalinguistic statement when you are proclaiming 
the fact that there is no meta-language. I think this is the basic movement. There is no yeah. meta-language is a meta-linguistic statement, isn't it? I guess that's, that's part of the, this gets back to moving from the, the oscillation, right, of the, the one, not one, sort of pushing past that. Well, and, this is like the impasse of that oscillation, which I consider to be right, a right. transcendental condition. And then the, the point is like moving beyond that impasse, which is what we were discussing earlier. That is to yes. say, at the end of the day, either there is no matter language or there is a matter language. <laughs> you know, this right. is the point, isn't it? Either the not one is or the not one is one. The fact that what seems to be not one, our earthly perdition can be in a redemptive fashion to be substituted by a one. This is what religion has always been about. Yes. What I'm saying is actually the most rational, non-belief-based, if you wish, way of thinking of the possible oneness of not oneness is by the self-deceiving God. You know, that is the level I call metacritical instead of critical, i.e. transcendental in a yes. Kantian, in loosely Kantian sense. That is the point where the fact that there is no meta-language always enjoins you to actually utter meta-linguistic statements is solved one way or another. It's not solved because we are talking about a rational undecidability, but either there is no meta-language or the fact that there seems not to be meta, there seems to be no meta-language is at the end of the day, a meta-language. It's pretty linear. I mean, it's, it's not, you know, that sophisticated at the end of the day, then the passages can be much more sophisticated. But it reiterates the, what we opened with, what your, your quote about this transcendental conditions of, of speaking beings, there will be this God hypothesis as a set mm. of the effects of language. Yeah, I mean, like uh, the animal that contingently happens to speak in terms of the species is, to go back to the quote, a, this is a neologism, a deer. Yes. So a God sayer, that's the way I translate it. Yes. So the saying, the diga, is that which structurally already contains what we turn into the idea of God. So maybe something we didn't really discuss, which is quite important, also yes. because we touched on Lacan's appropriation, heterodox, however much you want, of Frege and formal mm-hmm. logic. But this is where, for me, especially in God is Undead, but that was already prepared in a way in the not too. The distinction between existence and essence becomes very, very important, you know, because at the end of the day, one issue is the issue of the logical existence of the one. And what we've been saying is, in a sense, that the one necessarily exists in our very transcendental framework. But that existence does not entail an essence, does not entail a substance, not to mention a person, an, an old man uh, <laughs> yes. with uh, a beard, you know? Yes. So this is the point, in a sense, you know, like uh, the God hypothesis is, in a sense, precisely this continuous oscillation between the one and the not one which is our basic uh, linguistic transcendental condition. Language is the transcendental, if you want to put it like that. I mean, this is very different from Kant, in a way. <laughs> right. 
That is the basic assumption. And we didn't really get into the sexual aspect of this. That is to say, there is no, that transcendental, that was mostly the main aim of the not too. That yes. transcendental is a phallic function. That is to say, that transcendental that allows subjectivation and also the ego that allows you to say, I am myself, is without solution of continuity, also that which allows you to be sexuated or sexed. So there is no subjectivation without sexuation and no sexuation without subjectivation. Starting from the presupposition of language goes together or even is synonymous with the absence of sexual meaning, which is another way to render there is no sexual relationship. There is no rationality in sex for the animal that happens to speak. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because I, I really liked when you reference Jean-Luc Nancy and I, I looked at that, his essay in Corpus 2 and this notion of, the notion of a, of a rapport, right? It being mm. both a report, right? Something articulable mm. and, and not just a relationship, but, but specifically also a ratio, right? That there would be some yeah. sort of, this notion of there is no sexual relationship was something that Coop and I have talked about all week. And it is hard to talk about precisely because it is this, this limit, right? This, it's not something necessarily articulable, but, but, but the impossibility of it being articulable is, is, mm-hmm. is able to be written as a mm-hmm. function. I guess that I said all of that because, because this notion of a ratio between the sexes as though there were a pre-established harmony, right? And that to me was how I started to grasp this a little bit more clearly. You know, it is interesting when you, you also, in chapter two, you bring up I forget the author's name, but the title of the book, I think, was Freaks, right? Uh, Freaks where, of Nature. Where, Freaks of Nature. Thank you. Where Mark, you, Mark you, Blumenberg. And all of these interesting contingencies in yeah. the animal world that, one of which I, I knew before, but I always find fascinating, which is like a crocodile eggs, depending on the temperature that they are incubated, they, that determines, that is the mostly determining factor of the sex of the baby crocodile. I, yeah, you know, and all, well, well, things well, like that. Croco- crocodiles are, yeah, puzzling. I mean, if I remember correctly, I haven't reread this stuff for long. And my knowledge of crocodiles is quite limited. But besides, <laughs> besides that, the other thing is that they do not have sexual chromosomes. Mm. Whereas imaginarily, in a way, their, let's call them genitalia, are yeah. quite mammalian like. But there are right. no sexual chromosomes. I mean, <laughs> maybe I got this wrong. I think it's no, something I th- I, like that. Yeah, and, and I guess that my question would, would be, but we have to be careful of extending this axiom, there is no, the absence of the sexual relationship mm. to nature as a whole or to the animal yeah. kingdom, right? We have to be a little bit careful about that because as you said, absolutely, as you said, this is a condition of language. This is a, this is a condition of our, of castration or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, right? it would be like a, symbolic. It would be like another variation of what I was denouncing as a projection of incompleteness into nature as such, wouldn't it? Yes. In a sense. Even though, as Lacan puts it, I think some inner 19, then the question of whether there is a one in terms of a transcendental 
whole structure, qual oscillation one-on-one, even in the animal, is an interesting one, isn't it? Mm. It is, well, is an interesting one. Because otherwise you fall back in a kind of like simplified pseudo-Idegarian position whereby, well, the yes. animal is a closed box and that's it. You right. Know? It needs to be cautiously tackled in two different directions. One is precisely what you were saying, and it goes back to what we discussed earlier, i.e. the danger, avoiding the danger of projecting incompleteness, which is sexual difference uh, yes. with a couple of passages, into nature. The other danger is actually to fall back into a Heideggerian or quasi-pseudo-Heideggerian position whereby man is open and the animal is closed. So Where's- Sex is, sex is easy for, exactly. for well, animals. Which is, like, which is a problem like Lacan has in the early seminars. And then he, I noticed this in the not too, in a couple of, on a couple of occasions where I think yes. there is a quite sustained self-criticism there. I mean, the idea that actually animal sexuality, seminar one, for instance, is, it says, very, very straightforward analogy. And all, it happens like a key in a keyhole. That leads us back to what we were earlier noticing as the danger of a negative anthropocentrism. You yes. know, like beautiful animal, the presupposition of, you know, the animal is this kind of like... Like a noble savage your, or something. Exactly, depending on your predilections, but either the noble savage animal or, you know, like a kind of like stupid deterministic understanding of it as a, as a machine, uh, which, right. is more, which is a more in a sense, misleading, in a sense. Cartesian. Well, yeah, I, I, I suspect you're going to say that. I think Descartes is, much, he's quite, he's quite, uh, he's quite uh, good when he speaks about that, in a sense. I mean, it's, a, you know, like... We actually just... Dis- oh, yeah, go ahead. He has a way in which, you know, we all know about the fact that basically like an animal is like a clock, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, right. But he's very nuanced, much more, more, more nuanced than I'm being now, you know, like... Um, I, it, opens I, a lot, it opens a number of questions because in a sense, like the fact that a stone and my pet are the same thing ontologically follows from what we were saying about, you know, incompleteness, difference, indifference. So again, Descartes is not maybe as dull and dumb as it seems or as he's made to seem, even when he tackles the que- these questions of like the machinic structure of, of, of the animal. I think like, there's a lot to be rediscovered there. I think this is also why Lacan and Guattari himself very much following in Lacan's footsteps become interested in ethology and mm-hmm. like bird nuptials, right? And, and the fact that it's not all that simple and straightforward. There's, a, there's this great diagram in the machinic unconscious where Guattari is, is kind of crisscrossing all kinds of different factors in, in bird mating, you know, obviously on one structural level there's hormones but there's there's nest building mm. there's there's courtship rituals and each species has its own kind of use of the display of feathers and and songs and and mirroring right so uh yeah absolutely no like like even v lacan was tempted by the watered down heideggerian schematism open versus yes. no, no open even that lacan for instance, speaks of, well, bird mating in terms of primary narcissism, a first kind of narcissism, you know, like it's a long, fascinating discussion. Clearly there's another then second level there he identifies in the human animal, which again brings us back to the problem we were saying of negative anthropocentrism. 
etc. But there is a recognition that however much on one level one can say animal sexuality is like, you know, a key and a keyhole, there yeah. is already what he calls repeatedly like narcissism involved. Mm -hmm. Narcissism in terms of the power, capturing power of images. Yes. I think he brings up ethology directly yes. in the in the mirror stage essay, right? Mm, he kind of, he kind of, he kind of even intimates that there might be this, as you're saying, this sort of uh, in the parades and the in the mimicry, there is an aspect of of this kind of mirror stage in bird ethology. So it's not as well, what, not, what, what is not there. What is not there is the alienating identification that lies at the, at the base right. of the imaginary formations of the animal that happens to speak. Yes. That is to say, primary animal narcissism has to do with, I think the word he uses repeatedly, is recognition. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, in a sense, the idea that the umwelt and the innenwelt uh, are absolutely imminent to one another, that you, the animal environment is pure imminence, that would not make sense for that Lacan. Interesting. Because in a sense, like, images are, in a sense, causal, even... In animal ethology, animal ethology, this has been much underestimated in Nalakan because there are then the passages which are about, okay, animal sexuality, it's just like a swift, right? Reproduction, <laughs> key and keyhole, right? Yeah. No, but there is the point that actually animals also are not psychically caused by images, like, like I would say with the human animal, but there is a level of recognition of the images. And hence, like, there's already like a certain threshold of potential not transcendence of course but transcendentality you know mm. like the mm -hmm. hypothesis that it would be like a fourth uh, chimpanzee in the future who could actually become a differential animal you know mm. yes or or the question of like you know i'm not a big lover of pets but lacan has time and again the question about you know like the training of pets in a sense like what is the threshold of proto differentiality Clearly, mm -hmm. it can only be recognized retrospectively, can it not? You know, it can only be given retrospectively when you have a symbolic system. In terms of purely like evolutionary theory, you know, like this takes time. And there might be already there some activated neuronal or physiological threshold of differentiality. I don't know, dolphins, I don't know. I mean, I'm really against this kind of, you know, like, uh, oh, look at the dolphin, how intelligent they are, you know? Right. Like, but this is an interesting point to be made, you know, like what, what is, Lacan says, what is the natural ballast of the symbolic? That is an interesting kind of exploration of the animal kingdom, isn't it? So I can insist on its sheer, dull, dumb indifference ontologically, but it can also adopt a certain kind of symbolic and retroactive temporal perspective whereby my trained dog, maybe it's not just like the dog it was in, uh, in the wilderness, you know? Yeah, right. I don't have right. a dog and I will never have a dog. But <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, you know, like uh, even the naive Lacan on the division animal human is more nuanced than, than it, it seems at first sight. That's really good. I mean, I, I, I'm just definitely thinking about one of the things that, that came out in, in you bringing up dolphins and this question of, of some other animal emerging, let's say, into the parletra, into a speaking being or something like that. I was thinking about, you know, you mentioned in the introduction to God is Undead, this 
this heated exchange that happened with Adrian Johnston. And one of the things that came out was, though, was, was this admiration for Adrian Johnston's sort of drive to bring in neurosciences into the discussion. Mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't seem Lacan would necessarily disparage that, even though he might have some reservations. No, absolutely. I mean, like, I dialogue, but I'm not against it, on the contrary. I mean, a dialogue right. with, with the life sciences in premise, if not the cognitive sciences, I mean, is, is much needed and much, much lacking, I guess, especially in most clinical psychoanalytical circles. So it's something we need to do as theoreticians. Um, it needs to be. Then the question is like, what is the relationship and what is the future of the relationship between psychoanalysis and science? It's a difficult and different question. You know, the dialogue needs to be there and it needs to be incentivized and augmented. I agree with that. And I think that that's, that goes along obviously with, with the, uh, your metacritical realism and Am I getting it the other way around? Is it Johnston's? No, it's correct. It's correct. Yes, metacritical correct. realism and his transcendental materialism, correct? correct. Those are the two. And so it, it kind of goes hand in hand. You know, it, uh, mm-hmm. it would definitely. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, and you make clear throughout your writing, this is one of the aspects of psychoanalysis that it does have these empirical aspects to fall on. But that's always an interesting tension, right? That. Uh, I forget how Lacan says it in one way, and I'm probably botching it, but he kind of says something about psychoanalysis. The future of psychoanalysis could entail, and the future of science could entail allowing psychoanalysis into it. Is it something like this, that there is this... Well, uh, I mean, like, uh, if you go back to Freud, clearly, like, Freud... uh, Yes. ...repeatedly, that basically, you know, like, I'm simplifying, but in a sense, psychoanalysis could you know, become a branch of biology or, you know, like a hard science. Uh, right. In a sense, subservient to biology. Lacan has a slightly different take, and that's in Seminary 11 especially. I mean, the question is not what kind of science could psychoanalysis be or is. I think that's the wrong kind of question. Right. What would be a science which could accommodate psychoanalysis? Yes, yes in terms of like psychoanalysis very much in a sense criticizing to go back to your previous point the persistent ontotological orientation of, of science yes on the one hand you have like the modern scientific revolution which mm-hmm. is what makes us who, who we are which allowed us to travel to the moon and maybe mm-hmm. beyond etc cetera, etc cetera. on the other hand there is still like this need to actually accumulate and ideally totalized knowledge, which is very pre-modern, isn't it? I mean, yes. this is very, a very kind of like ancient Greek epistemic take on knowledge, you know. The last question on this score, is it precisely because modern science still tends to reiterate a university discourse that it would, it would therefore never be able to, in its current iteration, in that iteration, accommodate the analytic discourse, which are, if not fundamentally opposed, then having completely different Projects. No, I guess like I, I'm not sure. I you know, like I guess like there are two levels here to be tackled. One is epistemological, and one is more political, perhaps. I mean, the, on the epistemological level, I'm not sure what Lacan's answer would be or my answer to the question: Is the contradictory tendency of science with regard to the real, to put it like that, yeah, yeah, necessary or is it not? I'm not sure there is an answer there in Lacan. Mm-hmm. Up to a certain point. It is inevitable insofar as, in a sense, we are 
egocentric animals and mm -hmm. you know our science cannot be in a sense not voted to a fantasy of totalization on the other hand clearly what Lacan calls the curious quote copulation between science and capitalism is far from historically necessary yes because clearly you know this egotistic epistemologically egotistic drive of science is very much tied to the political economy, isn't it? Yes. I mean, the accumulation and possible totalization of knowledge, the turning of knowledge into value, this is what has been going on, not since Descartes, but in the last 200 years or even more, then we can have into yeah. the question when it started, whatever. But that's for Lacan, like far from, in a sense, transcendentally quasi-unchangeable. It's actually a curious copulation, the one that we are submitted to between science and capitalism, which certainly enhances science's ontotological drive. Marx points this out in the, in the Grunrisse, where he mentions how invention becomes a business, right? But there's nothing, that's a critical retrospective statement. It's contingent. It's contingent upon, as you said, this curious copulation, this curious... Uh, these curious encounters that are contingent. And uh, I think that's where Lacan and Marx and, and Deleuze and Guattari too are all yeah. kind of in agreement on, on this point that there's nothing that dictates that science sort of has to be the first, scientists have to be like the first, um, the first recruits of capitalism. Absolutely. No, there's nothing, even not transcendentally, but even historically necessary. Lacan would say, no, there is, this is just the way shit happens in a sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in parallel, said there is a very strong insistence on the fact that the true event, if you want to put it like that, that split in history into two is the early modern scientific revolution. Interesting, yeah. In yeah, terms that's... of precisely a new relation to physics, to nature, mm -hmm. whereby nature is not understood any longer. I mean, this is already partly in Coiré uh, and Coget, but like I'm synthesizes the two and he has a very interesting approach on that i mean the, what modern science starting with galileo and descartes maybe in a sense well newton of course but then up to clearly einstein and uh up to yeah. even like if you want to bring in mathematics set theory what what is so eventful about science is not so much you know as lacan says the technological gadgets that he produced in its copulation with capitalism. It's yeah. just a, a matter, it's not primarily a matter of production. It's, well, fundamentally, the whole idea, the whole idea of like replacing a geocentric with an heliocentric model of the universe and the way in which you as a animal organism relate to the world. That is to say the fact that what is given to me in, in terms of like perception, if not sense data, is not the truth. I'm really simplifying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What is given to you as the sun moves and our planet does not move is not what founds a theory of knowledge. What founds a theory of knowledge is a formalization, is a basic, a basic well, you can be more specific, it's letters and numbers which are given against the background, always more evidently, of a non-correspondence and an anti-animism between the imaginary unity you believe you are as mm -hmm. a organism and your environment. That there is no, 
well, I mean, this is what physics more and more tell us, right? What is, <laughs> yeah. what is physical in physics today? I mean, this is the point, but in a sense, for Lacan, that was already the good side. I mean, this is what makes modern science so effective, but also that that was a truly unheard of epistemological breakthrough, you know, event, if you wish. Helps to clarify why you uh, emphasize the Galilean revolution over something much more typical like the Copernican, and you kind of nicely encapsulated that. Well, the Copernican is also important, right? Because, I mean, like, it's yes. more intuitive in a sense. Um, or <laughs> Lacan would say, like, Kepler more than Copernicus. But anyway, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's yeah. not just the model of the universe. I think, like, that, that is intuitive and helpful with regard to what I was saying in terms of, like, what basic basis and basics do our modern knowledge have. It's no longer based on sense data. Right? Yes, yes. And that has to do also with basically, well, the sun is not moving around us. Galileo is fundamental for Lacan because of like, well, letters and numbers. The formalization aspect, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The inscription. Yes. System, yeah. of, system of inscription, right? Interesting. Yes. Yes. Which, which is always given against the background of, of meaninglessness, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you actually cut down on the kind of like co-naturality of sense perception with the word, you are starting, you know, from with a kind of lack of knowledge, meaninglessness somehow. But I, I mean, again, like very stupidly, but <laughs> what, I mean, the sun is not revolving around the earth, you know, doesn't make sense, does it? On the basis of sense data and perception. Right. Right. It doesn't make sense. That is a good point. And it, it just reminds me about, I'm trying to remember if Lacan says this or not, and this will be one of the last things and, and we can wrap up, is the, the transmissibility of knowledge that formalization mm. supposedly allows. Is that correct? Does he kind of formulate it that way? Mm. Yeah, I mean, formalization should ideally guarantee transmission. And then the question is like, does it? Does it not? Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, whether this can be applied to the practice of psychoanalysis, I think, has been disproved repeatedly. And I think, like, towards the end of his life, Lacan was no longer so confident in the fact that actually a certain kind of formalization can be applied specifically to, say, for instance, like the formation of psychoanalysts. Uh, not, yeah, not us speaking about, like, the logic of the situation via for formulas. I mean, that, that, that's another, I mean, transmissibility and formalization were first and foremost, I guess, like, thought to be, well, to be applied to, to, to the question of the training of analysts, if not the end of a psychoanalytic treatment. That question then is, is different from being able to formalize the terminability or interminability of analysis, right? It's, it's hard yeah, yeah. to make a cookie cutter box for each encounter. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think like up to a certain point, Lacan believed in the fact that actually as Milner, Jean-Claude Milner puts it in a sense, you know, like this beauty of structuralism, not what was made out of it, the idea that actually Galileanism could have been extended to the human sciences. Yeah. That's the way Milner puts it. It's a very nice way. I mean, clearly the project collapsed, but it was beautifully ambitious, wasn't mm. it? I mean, starting with linguistics, right? Which up to a certain point has become a science, up to a certain point. 
Yes. If you go back at least until the late 60s, I mean, the best minds, especially in France, were thinking that this was possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, if you leave aside, like, the mid-late-ish Foucault bashing stupidly at times against psychoanalysis, in, <laughs> in the order of thing, I mean, Foucault is not that far from saying, you know, linguistics and psychoanalysis and structural anthropology are human sciences in a way which is not what we take to be the human sciences today in 2022, which is like, we, you know, it's like only negatively, oh, it's not a science, right? Yeah. That, that's yeah, the way in which the university discourse works, right? I mean, that's exactly true. And, it, and it's it, it also, you were talking about Foucault bashing psychoanalysis. I was thinking about Sartre doing the same thing, but reluctant, maybe not reluctantly, but retracting later his sort of earlier positions about, about the, you know, the unconscious being just this, this fiction or, or not need like, why would the, the transcendence of the ego need it? You know, and, and later he's like, you know, I, did, I don't think I really understood <laughs> exactly what I was talking about. At least he's, at least he was honest about, about retracting something as widespread as that. And he had his own kind of reasons and, and himself was trying to do an existential psychoanalysis. So, it, you know, there was some, a little bit of maybe anxiety of influence, so to speak, <laughs> you know, but we can leave it there. I know we would, we would be able to talk for, well, for hours and hours and hours um, Thank more. you. It was very nice to talk to you. We're so happy to, to have you on, Lorenzo. Thanks I, for all your questions and we keep in touch. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. yes. Definitely yeah. want to keep in touch. I definitely want to, uh, we definitely want to have you back if you're available. I know you're busy, um, but we definitely want to talk more about God is Undead Thanks. and your future project on true love. And we, we, we barely, as you said, scratched the surface on sexuation. So that's something that, that we'll have to come back to. I was, I was more uh, sort of I had a, a short sightedness, I guess. I was, I was zoomed in on the, on the God question, on the God oh, hypothesis. No, that's great for me. I mean, it's newer stuff. So yeah. thank you. That just helped me also, you know, like to, to put things together and especially in view of like you know, future work to be done. This episode will probably drop in two weeks, right, Coop? Right. Right. And so when it, when it does, I'll, I'll, send you a, I'll send you an email and, and a link. And uh, as I said, it'd be great to have you back. I know that Cooper and I are tentatively planning doing a kind of series where we we take each seminar and sort of isolate some um, some of the lessons and do an episode on on each one of them it'll motivate me to read them all and, right. and so I would definitely Both of us. <laughs> if not you know I would definitely like later in the year to extend you to come back on and, and work with Thank us through, through one of your favorite ones or just get your feedback on your opinions on on some of the the lessons that might be essential yeah. uh, to some of them sure Excellent. Well, thank you very a, much. Have a great night, and we appreciate your time. And you. See you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. 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 Both. Bye. Once again, thanks to Lorenzo Chiesa for joining us on this week's edition of the Machine Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. Ciao. Of of things in pure violence without object This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here.
nothing left but recycle, whitewashed, lobotomized people as in a block work orange.